Hey guys, Brian Jodis here with another great offer from our friends at Onnit. Check out New Mood. Everything that goes up must come down, ourselves included. During the day, we amp up with coffee, nootropics, pre-workout, and more, all in the name of meeting the challenges in front of us. New Mood is the amp antidote, helping you relax and focus on yourself by turning down the noise of the chaos. Designed to give you calm, the carefully sourced ingredients support your body's natural serotonin production to help erase daily stress. Let's bring it down at the end of the day here, guys. Go to their website, onnit.com, find that new mood, use the code PIC6, P-I-C-K-S-I-X, and save 10% today. Shoot, man, use that code. You're going to save 10% on everything at Onnit. Go check it out. We love those guys. We're so grateful for their support. Go to onnit.com, O-N-N-I-T, and use that promo code PIC6, P-I-C-K-S-I-X, and save 10% today. Kent Solheim laid on the battlefield in Iraq in 2007. He had been shot in both legs. He thought he was going to die in combat, and he nearly did. He joins us on this episode of Pick Up the Six to talk about what he lost on that day, but what he gained in the process, including a desire to give back even more. Let's meet Silver Star recipient Colonel Kent Solheim on today's show. Ken Solheim, welcome to Pick Up the Six podcast. How are you? I'm great, Brian. Thanks for having me. Absolutely, man. This is one of those Brad Borders connections. Our listeners at this point are very well aware of the fact that when Chap, as I referringly call him, when Brad Borders says, hey, I got somebody for you to have on Pick Up the Six, uh, we seek it out. We hard charge to find it. So I'm thrilled to have you and, and know that we've got that mutual connection in uh, in what I call a high impact man and a guy like that. There's no doubt about it. So a mutual connection like that, my friend, is always a good way for a conversation to start. Agreed. Agreed. You you, uh, you hold good company when you're around Brad Borders. Yeah, I, I tend to think I bring him down a notch or two, but that's <laughs> all right. We keep, we keep working hard. Man, tell me your story, right? So enlisted in the Army in 1994, became an officer in 99. How'd that journey for you take place? Um, that's, a, that's a good question, Brian. I, I kind of grew up wanting to to join the military. I didn't really have any military in my, you know, immediate family. So, uh, but I had a very supportive family. So, um, and I was actually newly married at the time and, uh, was living in Canada. That's where my dad was working. So crossed the border into Michigan and, um, and enlisted into the United States army and was, uh, let's see about two and a half weeks later on my way to basic training. So December, 1994. <clears throat> and, uh, I went through basic training at, at Fort Knox, Kentucky. And it's kind of the rest is history. So, so, uh, you know, as you said about 1999, um, I, I was looking for, for more out of the military kind of wanted to challenge myself. So, uh, I went to officer candidate school, kind of got, got, uh, my college hours by going to school at night and on the weekend, the, um, as an enlisted guy and then went to OCS. So commissioned in 99 and then, um, kind of still looking for more out of my career and went to, um, special forces assessment selection in, um, 2002. So the rest is kind of history from there. You know, we're not, but uh, a little over a week removed from the 20 year anniversary of nine 11. So you talk about going to that special forces selection in 2002. It's a different world at that point. It's a different, it's a very different world than when you joined the army. Do you mind taking me back 
2001 to September the 11th, 2001, what, what you remember from that and just how you felt things changed? Uh, you know, just like everybody else, I think who lived it at an age where you can remember, you know, it's the, it was our JFK moment, but I, I absolutely remember the walking in. Uh, I was actually at the university of Louisville at the time doing degree completion as part of, uh, the officer candidate school requirement to get my bachelor's degree. So <clears throat> I was, uh, in between classes and the first plane hit and, you know, back then you remember that first plane, we just thought it was an accident. Yeah, totally. Uh, then there came the realization with the second plane, um, not but minutes afterwards that, uh, you know, we were under attack. And so, yeah, life looked upside down for everybody, me included. And, um, uh, you know, I, I went through selection in 02, as I said, but I didn't actually graduate from all the training that you get when you're selected and you go to the qualification course until um, 2004 and immediately left selection and was then deployed on my first trip to Afghanistan. So, um, and then all the years to come after that, uh, you know, the global war on terrorism that sprouted from the nine 11 tax, <clears throat> you know, that was, um, yeah, it was that, that was life in yeah. the military. And that's, that's what we did. And, uh, it's, it's even now as we see the military kind of change and those missions change, it's, it's, um, some of us legacy guys still remember the days of deployment on deployment off deployment on deployment off. That was, that was what, what life held. So definitely a different time. Twice to Iraq, four times to Afghanistan. What was that selection process like? Um, well, you know, selection. pretty incredible, huh? Yeah, it was a good experience. You know, for me, it was, a it was an opportunity to challenge yourself, kind of see where you stood, um, with a community of, of really good, uh, you know, good folks to your left and right that were trying to do the same thing as you. And then uh, a professional cadre that led you through it. So that was my first sort of bubble on baptism of fire, if you will, with, um, with green berets. I didn't know any green berets. I, I basically saw, um, saw an ad in the, in the exchange on post. And I was, I just had this desire to go overseas and be with other cultures and learn languages and, and do real world missions. And although, um, although if you remember back after nine 11, we invaded Afghanistan, it was still kind of a, uh, early on a smaller mission that grew over time. So, you know, you, you thought you might be deployed there and over the, over the years we would be, but early on, you, you know, didn't know that for sure. So, um, so, uh, that was my driving force to kind of go to, to selection and try to join the the ranks of special forces, just the pamphlet sold me. So you know, I read it and I was, you know, I was drinking the Kool-Aid. When you, uh, when you've got that sort of first face-to-face encounter with those green berets and you've got those cadres that are leading you through it in the dark moments of those nights, right? Cause it's a multi day kind of event. And I think it culminates if I'm not mistaken, kind of in a pretty big effort. Um, what were those moments like? Um, you know, I, I've got, got a few memories of that. It's a long time ago now, but I do remember it being uh, a couple of the things we did. They're probably the hardest things I'd done in my life. And, I, and I'd done some pretty, um, you know, athletic things earlier in my life, endurance events and things like that. Um, as a, I was a bicycle racer and a, and a runner and some other things. And so 
had pushed myself pretty hard physically, but there was some, some times in selection where you had to dig pretty deep, mm-hmm. um, you know, really, you know, find who you are on the inside. So, uh, but I, I, I had, uh, I was pretty focused on, on giving, uh, you know, giving it everything I had to get through that because I wanted it pretty bad. So that motivation helped. I didn't want to come home and tell my wife I'd failed either. <laughs> so. yeah, some, some of that, uh, intestinal and mental toughness, you know, tested beyond the physical bounds of what you've got to put your body through to yeah. be able for your brain to keep that thing going. Right. And let it, let it not quit. All right. I want you to take me into 27 July, 2007. I'm going to read from a citation for a silver star award. It says while providing security outside the objective, captain Solheim single-handedly thwarted an enemy assault by exposing himself to enemy fire to kill a rocket propelled grenade gunner and enemy gunman maneuvering on his comrades. His valorous acts saved the lives of many who would have suffered devastating casualties at close range. Take me back into that day. If you don't mind. Sure. Um, yeah, mission was in Karbala, Iraq, and uh, not too far from Baghdad. And uh, that particular trip, I was uh, well that night. I was with the Iraqi counterterrorism force, and then um, uh, part of my third special forces group unit. So we uh, we infilled onto the objective, and it was actually kind of in the middle of town. Karbala Karbal is what you'd call a spicy neighborhood. And so uh, we we found ourselves in a firefight pretty early on, and um, you know a lot of it, it was it was intense at times. And so uh, when I was wounded, it was actually as we were we were coming off the objective, we were there to to find a uh, enemy battalion commander essentially, and so we. Uh, we hit jackpot, meaning we got the guy we were looking for, and uh, we we just needed to exfil out of the objective and get back to home base. And so that was going to require a, about a kilometer movement to a, a hot landing zone for aircraft to come in and pick up the Green Berets and the Iraqis we were with. And and then uh, you know throughout, actually it was just about as we were start going to start movement off the objective, still in a pretty good firefight. Um, that I was, uh, with the citation you read, those events happened and ended up getting shot four times. Um, and two, three of the rounds, one round struck my uh, left leg, two rounds struck my right leg. And then, uh, a fourth round struck my, uh, my, it was kind of a grazing wound that went off my scapula, my shoulder. Mm-hmm just uh, odd how it hit kind of went under some body armor and um, yeah, kind of a very, very, very deep uh, flesh wound, if you will. So um, kind of got lucky with that one, but um, anyway, was, has some very traumatic injuries to my right leg, uh, you know, arterial bleed, massive trauma and soft tissue damage, um, broken femur, all sorts of craziness. And so, um, I, I was alone where I, where I'd fallen. I had a, a special forces medic that had moved, moved up with me from the location where, um, we, we had some cover and then we moved forward with the, so the insurgents that were, were starting to, to uh, close in on our position. And then, uh, but he was a little bit behind me and, uh, he saw the, 
the rounds coming in and sock cover. He didn't know I'd been hit. And so I was forward and, and sort of alone with, with insurgents around me. And, um, the ones that were around me, I, I, I of course, I don't remember the, all of this, right. I was, I was losing a lot of blood pretty quick, <clears throat> but, um, I, I think through there's three dead insurgents there. And, uh, so I, I was able to get on the radio and let, uh, let folks know that let my guys know, Hey, I've been shot. Uh, and I knew my, le- I thought my leg was blown off because the nerves were all, were all severed. So I had no sensation in my leg. Anymore. So I, I just thought it was blown off. Um, and so, uh, let them know I'd been hit. I knew I'd been hitting the shoulder. I knew I'd been hitting the right leg. I didn't even know I'd been hitting the left leg. Um, and so, um, medics were moved forward, did the right thing, did some kind of combat casualty care where they, they, uh, they weren't able to treat me right where I was just because we were still taking fire. But, um, I do remember them telling me, Hey, Kent, this is going to hurt. And they grabbed my body armor and drug me off the, uh, off the X hmm. a compound. And that's where they started to, and I actually, I, I don't know this for sure. I think they tourniqueted my leg out there, um, and, you know, made themselves put them, put themselves in some risk, I think to do that. <clears throat> but, and they got me to compound and then started treating the other injuries that I had. And so, uh, we had a long night, you know, uh, we, we, we couldn't, we couldn't really move from that compound because we were taking fire. And so we were pinned down and a lot of aircraft were coming in and, and, uh, I'm trying to clear the way to, for us to get out. Uh, eventually they, the team just had to walk, you know, they had to walk to the, to the HLZ I was talking about, to the loading mm-hmm. zone. And, um, so they, uh, carried me out. Um, luckily, luckily I was the only person to hit that night and the only person that got hurt, but, um, got me to the, uh, HLZ and, and I, I remember, uh, just trying to stay, you know, some, some capacity trying to stay alert and awake Cause I was afraid I was, I was going to die if I, if I, if I went out. Mm. So, um, I, I do remember getting handed off to the bird. I don't know how I remember this. I'd lost almost all my blood at this point. We really shouldn't have survived, but got to the bird. And I remember being handed off to the, uh, flight surgeon and that's it and blacked out the next time i woke up was 24 hours later getting loaded on a bird in the green zone to head back to um <clears throat> lawn stool germany um where i was in intensive care there so uh that was sort of that journey that night yeah it's incredible uh and we say this often uh when we have service members like yourself join us and share those stories you know, Nick Laverly, Green Beret, lost his leg in combat, uh, shared a very similar story. And what I often say, and I mean this, is we thank you for doing that, and we don't take it for granted. Our listeners don't take it for granted. I don't take it for granted. What it means for you on a Sunday evening to lean in and, and share that story with us. So, Kent, thank you uh, for doing that, uh, and thank you for your service to our country, for sure. I, I got to think that in the years uh since, and we'll talk about sort of the moments after and what the battle to recovery is like and, and where you're tested through that. But in the years since, how much you think about those guys that pulled you out of there, um, you know, that that 
that pulled that burden of of carrying you out and really exemplified that leave no man behind spirit. Yeah, I, you know, I was lucky. Um, there's no no doubt in my mind. Well, medically, whatever, I, there I would have died. I was literally, <clears throat> I won't even say minutes. Well, definitely a few minutes, a couple minutes from dying. Um, I, I know how, how long it takes to, to die from a, a severed artery in your leg. You know, we're talking like four minutes, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and, and you can expire before that because there's a point of no return. And so I don't know how, how close I was, but it, it wasn't long. And I didn't, uh, <clears throat> after getting hit, um, I was pretty shook up. I, I didn't, I did not do what I should have done, which was apply a tourniquet. I already was a little loopy myself. And, and so, um, those medics, we wouldn't be having this conversation anymore for them. And, you know, of course they came out, exposed themselves and risked their lives to, to get me off the objective. Um, that goes for all the, all the operators that were there that night that, um, carried the stretcher, provided cover fire medics that kept me alive while we were, we were walking out. Um, and I, I, I remember them. I think, I think they were squeezing my leg trying to keep me awake, like cause pain, you know? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and, uh, and even the Iraqis, they weren't as strong as the Americans. So they kept dropping my stretcher. And of course that was extremely painful with the trauma that I had. And eventually the Americans just made the decision, Hey, we're going to, we, you know, we're, we will carry him out. We can't, we can't let the Iraqis keep doing it. Those, you know, those are little things that really matter. You look back and that's tells you a little bit about the quality of the people that you work, work around what they're willing to do for you. And, and uh, you know, when it really matters. So yeah, that's, good. That's incredible. Uh, incredible. You know, yep. Good, good people, but that's just, they're all like that. Yeah. Yeah. At what point are you, and I don't know if it's in Germany or if you're transported back to the States, or at what point are you awake enough, uh, have come to, to know the severity and what ultimately is your fate after that day? I didn't, I didn't know. I did not know the severity of my injuries until, um, it was, it was at Walter Reed. Um, and yeah, it was when I met with my, my surgeon at Walter Reed, where he, oops, sorry, where he, um, he met with uh, me and my wife and said, Hey, you know, you're, you're going to see lots of amputees come and go out of this hospital. I wasn't an amputee yet. Um, he said, and, uh, they're going to be out of here in four months walking on a prosthetic and you're still going to be fighting, uh, cause you're injuries are very serious and uh you know basically he was telling me it it would have been easier to lose your leg right there than you know what i had what i had ahead of me so uh yeah i did i did not grasp because nobody told me but i did not grasp how bad those were until a couple weeks maybe then not even a couple weeks maybe a week after when my, my, uh, orthopedic surgeon really just sat me down and kind of broke the bad news to me that, um, I would lose the use of my leg, maybe get 20% back if I was lucky after multiple procedures. And, 
but the uh, the outlook was not was not good. And 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 they they basically told me like amputation is probably going to be something you'll you'll consider down the road. But um, they were not willing to entertain that idea right away. I was ready. I told yeah. them just how did you how did ultimately get there? Uh, I made the decision. Um, but, but like I say, I had, I had made the decision, um, really, really early, but the docs just weren't real, weren't, weren't ready to pull the plug without, um, at least giving an effort. Yeah. They want, try. they wanted some checkpoints, I guess, along the way right, yeah, to, yeah. to get them there. I, I, I don't, uh, I don't look back. I don't look back on that and say they did anything wrong. You're doing what doctors are supposed to do. And that's, if there's a 20% chance, there's a 20% chance, you know, actually I say 20%, I think 20% was the likely amount of return I would get in my leg. If I, if I was lucky, uh, could be better, but we just didn't know until we'd done some nerve procedures and some other things and some nerve grafts and stuff like that. So yeah, I, uh, those surgeons are my couple of my heroes. They still are. I invite them to every significant event in my life. You know, they, they, uh, they've, they've always been there for me and just like the guys on the objective, just, uh, incredible human beings. You know what Nick told us, uh, when we spoke to him on this podcast, uh, they said, what do you want to do next? And, and he said, I got to get back to my team. So this happens to you in 2007. And by 2009, I think you're officially back to work. So how, how quickly did you know I'm going back in? Because you could have had every right to medically retire from there, and that could have been it for you. Seems to me like that wasn't an option, though. Right. Um, I, you know, I, I, I didn't know what the future would hold physically, um, <clears throat> but I knew what my future would hold in my occupation because I had a great unit. And uh, they let me know early on that no matter what, there'd be a home for me back at the unit. Um, and so that was huge for me. Uh, I didn't know what capacity I would be able to come back because I didn't know if I was really going to walk, how I was going to walk, you know, what, what things I would no longer be able to do, what my new normal would be. But but I knew I could go back. So uh, I made that decision really quick that I would, I would rehab hard and, um, find my, my new, uh, hundred percent. And so much like Nick's story, you know, you just put your head down and figure it out. Yeah. Just keep going. You, uh, were an active guy, right? You talked earlier about, you know, being a runner, being a cyclist. So then you got to figure out what that, what life like that is like, right. As, as, as an amputee, as part of, uh, your journey moving forward. Tell me how you leaned in on those activities to help you through the recovery and to get you back active again. Um, yeah, well, I mean, even now I still uh, fall back on those things and, and amputating my leg. Uh, a lot of it was a part of just getting back to that lifestyle. Um, can't, I, I obviously can't do it like I used to, um, but even in my road to recovery, some of the some of those painful places that I visited doing endurance sports, you know, I was, you know, uh, I, I talked about cycling sort of like I, seven years. I competed as a 
cyclist. And so that's a true endurance sport, you know? And then when I joined the army, I ended up running, um, on a, on a team, three core army team for four years. And so same thing got, mm-hmm. um, really getting exposure to that. To, there's a different kind of pain when you do events like those, you know, and you're, when you're racing and you're trying to really compete. So, um, in my recovery, I definitely went to those places and that strength I found and um, some of that hunger I felt when I was competing, it's the same hunger I felt when I was uh, in recovery, you know, just to find your optimum level of performance again. And so, yeah, I used the bike as much as I could coming back, but uh, for a long time, like um, the, my injuries just wouldn't, wouldn't allow me to do much. So I would, uh, I, I spent a lot of time in the weight room and, People thought I was crazy. I would, uh, you know, I couldn't bend my leg, my right leg had a fixator on it. Um, mm-hmm. and my left leg, they eventually ended up taking out some nerves. So, um, uh, I remember one time I had, I, I don't know, a hundred, some stitched staples in my left leg and my right legs in this crazy leg thing. And I still was in the, in the gym on, on crutches working out, um, grossing people out, I guess, but, <laughs> but, um, but that's it. You know, that was just what I had to do to keep sane and stay in the fight. Feel like I was moving forward and I would same thing when I was in the hospital. I had this, by the way, this isn't me trying to pat myself on the back. This is what I needed to do for my mental health. But, uh, you know, I had a pull up bar installed in my bed so I could, work out on my bed when I couldn't walk and, um, uh, found my way down to the occupational therapy gym to work out. Um, so all that stuff, and that was just part of my recovery. That's how I, that's how I dealt with, dealt with it as best I could was just to feel like I was moving forward. You mentioned a lot of folks that sort of picked you up, picked up your six along the way, you know, and it's those surgeons. It's gotta be, got to be people in that recovery process that just are kind of in that battle with you um, and just become battle buddies. I, I would assume through, as you're going through that, through, through what that looks like, what was that experience like? Uh, you know, you talked about, I, I, I have talked about the doctors. That was huge. Um, they're my heroes. They really are. Uh, and to watch the lives that they, not just mine. I mean, you talk about the absolute most hideous, worst injuries that war can create and to have a, a somebody come in and not just apply their medical training training but connect with you on a human level to, you know truly understand try to understand what you're going through and <clears throat> and uh and comfort you and change your life uh that that was the, that was the encounters i had with with these doctors and um most most of them and like I say, like the two that were really stick out in my mind, uh, Dr. Al Potter and Doc Scott Sean were, were uh, those two surgeons that um, they took the time to sit in my bed, explain mm-hmm. me on, and then just gave me a, a sense of what uh, what I had what I had coming up, good or bad. They were just yeah. on, um, but I trusted them. I trust them to this day. Uh, they gave me medical advice and we're going to do it. So, but you know, I, apart from that, I, I talked about the soldiers in the field. I talked about the doctors, but then there's, you know, the other people that you're around when, um, you're going through this process. And so those, 
you know, other wounded guys were the, you know, you become pretty close to that community when you're in the hospital as well. So everybody's in a different phase, there's different depths of injuries. You know, I was eventually a below the knee amputee, um, but compared to so many guys in the hospital, that was nothing. It was kind of a joke, but everybody's like, oh, it's the paper cut, you know, when you had, you lost a leg, but it wasn't, or it, you didn't lose your knee, you know? Right. There's such a difference you lose your knee and then the height of the amputation or you a bilateral bilateral amputee you know i was in the hospital when the first quad amputee came in and then quad amputees that had other injuries that you're just like it's hard to even wrap your mind around um what life would be like for those young soldiers um as service members that suffered those kind of injuries so all this is going on around you and, uh, you know, there's a network that is a network that develops at the hospital where, um, it's interesting to watch the support system yeah. that, that comes out of that, you know? And so a lot of that was part of GSTA, some things I learned there on, um, what matters, what pulls people mm-hmm. out of dark places. What, what do you need? Um, what, what's the key, what, what makes some people what, what makes some people move on and what causes others to stay stagnant? And one, one person is defined by an event and other people, they, they're not, they choose not to be, they choose yeah. to move on um, and, and find a different reason to live, you know, and, and the worst in the worst conditions, the worst circumstances, you know? And so it's almost became a little study in, for me, a little personal study in, <clears throat> in uh, human nature and what, yeah. what what causes that, what, yeah. what makes yeah. that happen. You know? What keeps so. people driving, right? What, what what takes them from that moment of of tragic events to uh, to staying in the fight, and then to not only stay in the fight, but to to continue to accelerate, right? To find opportunities like you have uh, through competition, through sport to continue to to push, to go back and say, look, I was a competitive athlete before this injury. I'm going to be a competitive athlete today. And you've continued to do that. Tell me a little bit about Gold Star Teen Adventures. We got to talk about this before we go and uh, and some of the work you've done and, and, and know that you're continuing to serve our great country. So thanks, thank you for that as well. But tell me a little bit about Gold Star Teen Adventures. And, and I think part of that has been able to, to meet those youth, right? Those young people, who have suffered this terrible thing where their parent has uh, paid the ultimate price uh, for our nation. So tell me a little bit about that organization and the work you guys have done. Sure. Um, so Gold Star Teen Adventures, I call it GSDA. Uh, that's uh, a nonprofit that my wife and I started and we've been doing it for about a decade now. And um, what it is, is it's a program for the surviving children of fallen service members that's expanded just within the last couple of years and so now we we also serve fallen first responders and mm-hmm. fallen uh um in of our nation's intelligence agency communities like central intelligence agency or um defense intelligence agency so so we got a uh a broad group of people whose parents served our country in some capacity primarily military and law enforcement first responder and again like i said some of that uh, intelligence side but but uh, what we do is um we offer 
year-round programs for uh, for teens age 14 to 19, um, and they're they can enroll in one of two of our sort of a, we call them our academies. We got an outdoor academy, and then we have a scuba academy. And so over over four to five years in our program, they go from the very basics and those skills to being very competent in either of those things, whether they, you know, it's outdoor activities or whether it's diving to a level that's just below. And some of our teens even up to a professional level of diving. So um, we use diving as the tool and, and, and outdoor activities as a tool to meet these teens where they're at. But, but honestly, uh, that's, that's only part of the program to me. What's more important is what are you, what are we doing to, to uh, sort of contribute to the, the healing of these young people. Um, and, and we do that in, I think, a little different way than a lot of other organizations do. And then um, we want to provide these world-class opportunities. You know, my kids, my kids, uh, they were eight and 11 when I was wounded. But once I got through my recovery, my kids grew up doing all of these things. Mm-hmm. You know, my daughter's a rock climber now because she rock climbed with my, with with her old man, my, my son hunts and they're both athletes. They both, um, run, they're both, uh, high level scuba divers. I used to go on the list of all the things that my kids have done, but if I had not come home, um, that those things wouldn't have happened. And so the the teens that they are, or the adults, the young adults they are now is different than they, they would have been if, uh, if I hadn't made it home. So, so the, this idea of opportunity, we want to provide these teens the chance to do really world-class things and get, uh, you know, go to school after summer and say, Hey, I climbed this mountain. I dove to this depth. I earned this certification, whatever it is. uh, And and give them those things because those experiences, if you look back in any of our lives, you think about crucible moments in your life where you had to challenge yourself outside doing something or learning some skill. That's that formulates who you are, especially at a young age. So that's kind of the second pillar in our program is just those experiences. And then the third, I've talked about healing. Then the third thing is um, just leadership development. And I, um, you know, I've been blessed to be in the military for a long time and who I am, is because of the opportunities I've had in the military. And so um, we, we want to extend to these young people in those formidable years before they become, you know, their college careers, young adults, like let's give them the chance to, to learn how to lead. And so we really build a a program that's um, that's team led. So they get that chance to understand how to be a leader, understand how to be a follower understand why character matters, understand why a moral compass is important, mm-hmm. why, why what you value matters and how you live your life matters, you know? And, and so we use every opportunity that we have with these teams to build that kind of program that um, you're surrounded by goodness the whole time you're there. And um, so, so healing opportunity and um, leadership and character development are core to what we do. Guys, let's do what we do here and extend that uh, bit of service and thanks to this organization. Uh, and if you go to gstadventures.org, that's our website, gstadventures.org, there's a nice red donate button in the top right corner. Put a little wind in the sails 
of this incredibly important organization. And I love the fact that you've gone beyond uh, serving uh, those young ones whose parents have paid the ultimate price in the United States military, but also reaching into those first responders. And, and uh, we're seeing so much more of that, you know, across our community. Let's, let's ensure that we continue to put our arms around them there as well. GSTadventures.org, that website. Ken, it's incredibly powerful work, man. Uh, I've enjoyed this conversation. I could talk to you for hours about all these things. In fact, I'd love to maybe have you on again in the future. And, and maybe we, uh, we share some success stories about the young lives that you've seen impacted through that organization, through your continued work. Uh, still active duty today, right? So what are you up to nowadays? Uh, I'm a uh, brigade commander right now at Fort Jackson. So, uh, got myself busy down here, just a little south of you. Sure thing. Yeah, not not too far from where we sit today. Kent, so incredibly grateful for you to take time on an evening and, and sit with us and share your personal story, uh, how you battled through adversity, found yourself on the other side, and how you continue to help shape uh, those young people today as well. Thank you, brother. Brian, thanks for the opportunity to talk with you and I look forward to round two. My pleasure. He's Ken Solheim. I'm Brian Jodas and this has been Pick Up the Six Podcast.